Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can check out our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Okay, so today on the show, I speak with author, teacher, and public speaker, Anita Murjani. Since Anita's life story is so central to her work, I won't reveal too much biography here in my preamble. But in short, in 2006, after a four-year battle with cancer, Anita fell into a coma and was given just hours to live. She experienced a near-death experience, an NDE, that involved her leaving her body and was given the choice to return to her physical form or continue into the realm of the afterlife. Well, you may have intuited her decision. Her experience served as the inspiration for her New York Times bestseller, Dying to Be Me. She's also the author of What If This Is Heaven and the brand new release, Sensitive is the New Strong. Anita and I discuss what she learned on the other side about the nature of consciousness. We discuss her evolving understanding of illness and the modern medical paradigm. We talk about the nature of time. And we talk about how dying changed her life. You can check out our commune course with Anita at onecommune.com fearless. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Anita Morjani. My name is Jeff Krasno. And welcome to Commune. All right, Anita Murjani, the legend. Wonderful to be with you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Jeff. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, I've I've known of you for such a long time. I had the the honor to meet Dr. Dyer uh, in 2012, and he took my little diminutive hand into his big bear hand, <laughs> and um, and uh, I heard him talk about you, and that was my first introduction to you, and I've been following your work, so just a, a wow. great honor to be here with you. Wow. Um, thank you. Yeah, and... Um, Certainly, I'm interested in in probing uh, a number of areas uh, with you, including what what you may have gleaned about the nature of consciousness, your evolving understanding of the nature of illness, uh, your evolving conceptions of time. Um, but I suppose before we we dive into those waters, I'm hoping you can find the stamina yet one more time to to tell your story since it's uh, your biography is so central to your work and um and for those who are a little bit less familiar with your work i think we could uh, buttress our conversation there if, if you don't mind sure it's uh, i don't mind at all it would be my pleasure to to share it um so i was diagnosed with um a form of lymphoma in 2002 which was staged at stage two. Um, but over a period of four years, uh, I continued to deteriorate. You know, it kind of went up and down. I would get better and it would come back. Um, and I tried different modalities of therapies, including a lot of complementary 
Um, but by 2006, actually by the end of 2005, my health deteriorated dramatically, like dramatically. And the doctors told my husband at that point uh, that I had only three months to live. And uh, but six weeks later, I fell into a coma and and my body at that time was completely emaciated. I weighed about 85 pounds. I was no longer absorbing nutrition. My lungs were filled with fluid. I couldn't walk because my muscles had completely atrophied. Um, and I looked like a skeleton. And because my lungs were filled with fluid, I couldn't lie flat. I would choke on my own fluid. So I always had to be propped up. Um, as I said, I didn't have the strength to walk. And um, I had these big open skin lesions. And my organs started to shut down. And then I went into a coma. And it was at that point the doctors told my family that these were my final hours and that I was not going to come out of the coma and I was going through the dying process. But um, unbeknownst to everybody around me, even though my physical body appeared to be dying and my eyes were closed, I was aware of everything that was happening around me. I was aware of the distress of my family. I was aware of what the doctors were saying and what they were telling my family. And, um, and, but I felt amazing. It was like I was no longer attached to my body. So I felt that, um, that I was, you know, I didn't actually, there wasn't a moment where I felt myself detaching from the body. It was almost like a, just a gradual thing where I suddenly realized that, oh my gosh, I feel amazing. And my physical body was lying there on this hospital bed with its eyes closed. And it looked so small and insignificant compared to how I was now feeling. And I wasn't viewing things with my physical eyes. It was more like just an awareness. Like um, I just knew it was an awareness. I could see them, but it wasn't a focused vision. It was like I had 360 degree peripheral vision. I could see the doctors. I could see my body. I could see things beyond the room that my hospital bed was in. Um, I could hear conversations outside beyond the room. And then I started to become aware of something even greater. I started to become aware that I was going through the dying process and I became aware of other beings that were around me to help me through this process. And one of them was my best friend who had passed away two years prior. Another one was my dad who had passed away 10 years prior. And then there were others who I didn't recognize, but I felt they were there to help me through this dying process. Um, I, but the, the thing that stays with me most is that I felt like I was just loved. I was like in this, um, pool of just what I can only describe as unconditional love. There are no words because it's nothing like I've ever felt in physical life before. And I felt like I didn't have to work at being worthy or deserving of this love. I'd spent a lifetime trying to gain approval, but now it felt like I didn't have to do a thing. I was loved just because I existed. And it was just the most incredible feeling. And I felt powerful and amazing. 
And there was a lot of clarity in that state, which we can dive into, you know, as the conversation unfolds. But it was like I understood why I had been sick and I understood how it was that I came to be lying on that hospital bed in that moment. But I reached a point where I felt I had a choice as to whether I wanted to continue in this death realm or in this afterlife realm, or whether I wanted to go back into my physical body. No part of me wanted to come back because my body was sick and dying and suffering, and my family was suffering because they were, had to look after me. So no part of me wanted to come back. But um, I felt that in the state of clarity, and I felt that the beings around me were communicating with me, like my dad and my best friend, and they wanted me to know that now that I knew the truth of who I really am, that if I chose to go back, my body would heal and it would heal very quickly. And they wanted me to know that it wasn't my time and that um, I had gifts and a purpose waiting for me, that I hadn't completed my purpose. And they wanted me to know that my purpose was linked to my husband's purpose and so they were basically encouraging me to come back. And so I made the choice to come back. And, and the minute I made the choice, I felt my dad say to me that um, now that you know this, go back and live your life fearlessly. Like literally, that was all I had to do. I didn't have to have a plan or, a, you know, I didn't have to figure out my purpose or anything. I just had to go back and live my life fearlessly and everything would unfold. And so with that, I, I made the decision to come back. And in the moment I made the decision, literally, it, was, it felt like moments after my eyes started to open, you know, my, in my, on my physical body, my physical eyes started to open. And, and there I was, you know, like my family were all around me. And, um, and, and so they were excited that it looked like I was coming out of the coma. But for a while, it, for me, it felt like I had one foot on each side. So I was just talking. I was saying things like, dad is here and my friend Sony, and it's not my time. And I was saying all these things, thinking everybody would understand what I'm talking about. But they didn't <laughs> know what I was talking about. And I even said things to the doctor like, uh, oh, you took fluid out of my lungs this morning. And he said, but you were in a coma. You couldn't have seen me. Um, so they were all, and I was telling them conversations, which I couldn't possibly have heard. And so they were all really shocked. They knew something had happened. But, um, oh, and what I'd forgotten to mention earlier is that I had tumors the size of golf balls from the base of my skull, all around my neck, in my, under my arms, in my chest, all the way to my abdomen. So these tumors had spread throughout my lymphatic system. Um, the cancer had spread. And so after coming out of the coma, four to five days after coming out of the coma, the tumor shrunk by about 60 to 70%. And the doctors were blown away. They couldn't understand it. I was moved out of the intensive care unit to a regular room and continued to heal. And I had to focus on like building up my strength again. And, um, 
I, I was ecstatic. I knew I was going to be fine, but the doctors were still freaking out saying, this is not possible. We need to keep doing tests. This doesn't happen. We have to find that cancer and we have to eradicate it. And they were like, um, just not, they were short circuiting by what was happening, visibly <laughs> short circuiting. And, um, three and a half weeks later, they could find no trace of cancer and they still refused to believe it. They said, this is not possible. And they kept me in the hospital so that they could continue to search for the cancer. And they said, cancer does not disappear like that. We're not going to give up until we find it. <laughs> but five and a half weeks later, they gave up and they said, I, you can go home. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you remain cancer free to this day. Is that right? Yes, that was in 2006. Yeah, so in March. In, in March, it's uh, yeah, so it is 15 years in March. Wow, well, you'll have to have an anniversary party. I uh, it's such a remarkable story, and I've heard it many times, but just to hear it from your voice directly is uh, it's palpable and and beautiful and joyful. Uh, and I'll just add, just kind of parenthetically, as a 13-year-old, I was admitted to Sloan Kettering uh, in New York, which is a, a fairly renowned cancer hospital, and uh, spent an, a good chunk of time as a, as a kid there in the pediatrics ward. I was kind of right in between whether they would throw me in an adult ward or a pediatrics ward, but they had a bed in the pediatrics ward, and there I was. And uh, my, my condition was not serious and i exited you know without uh without you know further disruption to my life but uh, it was certainly a coming of age moment in my own life because the, the pediatrics ward in cancer hospitals are are generally a, a one-way door um, yeah. and uh it gave me some perspective and I, I would i would point to it as the central or the primary inflection point between boyhood and manhood <laughs> for me but um but you know your story just opens the door to about a hundred rooms of inquiry um and it's hard to know exactly where to start but i think just you know because many of our listeners and including myself have a spiritual practice and we engage in some form of meditation I suppose the goal of which is is some um, realization of the non-self or connection to the, the greater self. I, I, I wonder, and this is so difficult to actually put words to perceptions that are beyond our instruments, our limited sensory instruments to perceive them. And this is why I think you do such a, a beautiful job at making metaphor and allegory around it. But I, I wonder if you could describe that feeling of leaving the physical plane and this sense of being connected to a greater sense of awareness or a greater self. And I'll just punctuate the question with one last thing, which is like, I have read about NDEs and that those experiences are often, um, uh, tied into their spiritual faiths in in some fashion or the, the way that they experience them. So I wonder if there was any kind of Hindu 
context for you within your experience, like a connection to Brahman or a, a sense of being part of a, a bigger self of which our personhood is just sort of a mere reflection um, as part of this opening up. Uh, anyway, I'll leave, I'll leave it there for you to, to take any thread you want to pull on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. That's, that's a great question because it's really, it's big and it's broad and, and, and yeah. So, so first of all, I want to say that um, I know that our um, background colors, you know, so, so here's the thing. I'm not sure if our background beliefs color the near-death experience itself or whether it colors our interpretation of it after the fact. Mm. So that's something that I'm not 100% sure of because I had, I had, uh, and I feel my experience was, I feel that what lends me the ability to express it the way I express is my background. So when people talk to me about very religious centered, religious centric or religious centered near death experiences, you know, when they say they met whatever, it could be Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha, and, and they are adamant that this is, this is what happens when we die. I, I still listen to them. I still believe they had the experience. I still respect it and know it's true. But what I do feel is that when we speak about it, we need language. And that language comes from our culture, our, our paradigm, whatever paradigm we grew up in. And it just so happens that the culture I grew up in was very multicultured, where um, I have Hindu parents but I grew up in a in a city that was a British colony where I had a British education with with English um, kids and uh, where we grew up learning the Bible and singing hymns every morning and learning about Christianity. And uh, uh, but I but this British colony was Hong Kong, which is predominantly a city where the where the main population is Chinese. And so my my from the time that I was two years old, we, we moved to Hong Kong when I was two. I was born in Singapore, uh, which is also a Chinese city. And so from the t- age of two, I had a Chinese nanny who lived in with us. She was speaking to me in Cantonese all the time. I was speaking in English in school. I was reading English books. I was learning to read the Bible in school. My parents were speaking to me in their native language of Sindhi which is an Indian dialect, and they were taking me to the temple every week. My nanny um, was a Taoist, and she had an altar in in her room in our home, uh, a Chinese. It was a red altar where she would offer fruit, and I would talk to her about it. So I was exposed, <clears throat> excuse me, I was exposed to all of this. And in the same way that in my head, in my little head, that I could see that people of different cultures had or different ethnicities had different languages i believed that different people of different ethnicities had different religious beliefs and it didn't it didn't really hit home to me that each person believed that their belief is the one and only true belief if if you know what i mean um that 
is something I realized much later. I really just thought everybody thought the way I did. We all know we just have to respect everybody's religions, whatever it is. And they're all true at some way or another. So what happened is that um, as I, you know, as I grew up and I started to realize that, oh, wow, this is interesting. Um, each, each culture kind of believes theirs is the, the only truth. And so one of the, so I found myself in my own spiritual practice before my NDE, adopting certain things from different spiritual practices that worked for me. And I believed that there was a God and God was a being, an entity. And I believed, you know, and every time I would get into sticky situations, I would pray even when I had the cancer, when I was going through the cancer, I was praying to God to please help me. Um, and at the same time, I also believed in reincarnation, which is what I learned from my parents in our Hindu belief. So my spiritual beliefs were kind of a hodgepodge, and but they were very strong beliefs. When I was in the NDE, in the near-death state, my own beliefs were shattered. I realized that God is not a being. God is a state of being. Mm. So that changed for me. I realized that reincarnation is not something that happens in linear time. My life right now is not a culmination of all my past lives. I realized that all these lives are simultaneously, and I can access the wisdom from them right now in this present moment. And so it was, it just shifted me in such a way. And, and I do have analogies to help with that but but yeah, yeah well, I, I, was I just wanted ask to add it back to you i was going to ask you about that because i've heard you um talk about the nature of consciousness and attention with a with a metaphor of a flashlight in a warehouse yeah. and i and it was really very helpful uh for me to understand not only your own experience but what experience might be available to all of us if we choose to actually pursue it in this physical plane. So I wonder if you could yes. use that to color color the conversation a bit. I will do that. I will and I will share with you my flashlight in a warehouse metaphor. And I would like to share with you after that, if I may, another metaphor as well. Yeah, please. So so the so one of the things that I described in trying to explain this because I felt words were so limiting when I was in that NDE state. It, um, it felt like I had woken up to this huge warehouse. Now, what I want you to imagine, imagine that you are navigating through life and it's pitch black. It's like pitch dark, but all you have in your hand is a little flashlight. And so, um, so you're navigating through life with this little flashlight. And so you are illuminating the path ahead of you and you can shine your flashlight up the side walls and you can see stuff. Maybe what you see are shelves with things on it. You see a person. And so basically your flashlight just has this very limited, um, this limited focus of what it can illuminate at any time. And so now, and, and so that's how I would describe physical life. But now imagine if these big giant floodlights came on. And when these floodlights came on, you kind of go, whoa, is that what it looks like? And when the floodlights come on, what you, you realize you're in this huge space, like 
bigger than you can imagine, like maybe as big as a, a football field or bigger, but I call it a warehouse. And this place is lined with shelves, floor to ceiling shelves, and the ceiling is super high, like maybe even as high as the sky, but all these shelves are lined with different things. And all these things are not necessarily physical things. They are, they are physical things, but they are also ideologies and concepts and languages and cultures, just everything that exists on this planet. It could be different people's races. And, and you just see all these shelves aligned with, with maybe there's different holy books, the Quran, the Bible, um, the Hindu Bhagavad Gita, and all of these are on the shelves. And then there's wealth and abundance and there's poverty and just everything exists simultaneously. Every possible scenario of everything that exists on this planet is existing on these shelves. And you see them all at once. And you're like, wow, everything exists at once. Um, and it all exists simultaneously. And then what happens is when you come back into life, the lights go back off and you're back to one flashlight and and all you can see is the one thing at a time and this is a metaphor for our awareness our awareness is only focused on one thing at a time and we believe that that one thing that our awareness is focused on is reality if your awareness is focused on this if it's focused on the quran or if it's focused on whatever it is on racism or whatever, this is what you believe is all of reality. But when your awareness is focused on something else, that's your reality. But in actuality, all of it exists all at once, all of it. And it just depends where your flashlight is focused on. Yeah, that's is so, it's such a compelling analogy uh, for me. And I think for a lot of people, um, it, because I think what you're describing is a simultaneous connection to all things um, where, where there, is, there is no self per se. There is only the world or the self as part of the world. And, you know, as a, um, as a you know, neophyte meditator, I'll get glimpses of that from time to time, you know, where I'm like, there is only the world. There is, there is no me. Um, but I think the other thing that it, it calls attention to is the nature of attention itself. Cause I, I might ask you, you know, well, uh, how do your shoulders feel today, Anita? And, and a moment ago, you were just not even thinking about your shoulders, but now your flashlight, whether you like it or not, is focused on your shoulders. And it wasn't as if you weren't consciously, you weren't conscious of them before I asked you. It's just that your flashlight was not shown on them. Um, yeah. So it, it, it seems as though in this life where we are very limited by our instruments of our perception, our five senses and science's genius to expand them to some degree, but that's still a very limited scope in which to perceive reality. And it seems like from what i'm hearing from your experience was almost a shunning 
of our spatial limitations into a non-physical plane where we are no longer limited by, you know, seeing between infrared and ultraviolet or hearing between a certain amount of frequency vibrations. It's yeah. I sometimes describe it as a um, a a lifting of the filters because we kind of we accumulate these filters. Even even people who are into um, religious or spiritual practices, they are still what we learn from this physical world, from our paradigm, and we really need to. Um, shun all of that and become no body and no thing to really grasp that all of it is is part of it. Like everything, the bad, the good, the negative, the ugly, the beautiful, the beauty, all of it is part of it. Because like in the warehouse metaphor, the warehouse had everything. It had prisons and murders. Like it's like literally everything is contained there. If but but we can't when we're in the physical body perceive all of it right and i want to um yeah i want to give you the opportunity because i know you had another metaphor um and i look forward to it because it might be a new one which would be uh, quite quite juicy um for me so did you want to take that that moment sure. yeah let me dive into the the other metaphor i have is um so uh, you see i i used to believe in god as a as a being separate from me but i realized that god is a state of being and so and also the other thing is what i realized is that when we are not in our physical bodies when we are when we leave our bodies and we are pure consciousness in fact we are pure consciousness even right now but that pure consciousness part of us is connected to the pure consciousness of everyone else and not just the pure consciousness of you in the present moment is connected to mine, but it's like all our lifetimes as well. And so the metaphor that I have for that is that if you imagine, um, you know, those mirror balls, those disco balls from like the seventies, from the clubs in the seventies, um, so when you have one of those disco balls, and imagine it's a huge disco ball with lots and lots and lots of little mosaic mirrors on them. And uh, and so w- w- when it's in the center of a room and the light is shining on it, it refracts and it's got all these specks of light that that are refracted and they're all over the walls, all around the room. You'll see all these little specks of light. Now imagine if all those specks of light was us in our physical bodies, our lives, you know, running around our lives. Each of these specks of light perceives itself to be separate from all the other specks of light because they are individual little specks of light. And so you imagine now these specks of light are unaware that they are actually being refracted from a single mirror ball. And so these specks of light are all competing against each other and fighting with each other and creating nuclear bombs to kill each other and stuff like that. And when they die, that's when they realize that they are actually one of the mirror tiles on the mirror ball. Mm. And so each tile is, I would, if we, you know, I would call that the soul or the spirit. 
So even when we are in this physical form as this speck of light on the wall, your soul is still part of that whole, that one, refracting your energy, your life force energy as a speck of light on the wall. So you are still connected to this whole. And because all the mirrors are touching each other, they're all connected as one ball. They all share the same energy. They share the same consciousness. So literally every soul can access information and knowledge and experience from each one. This is why, for example, when one person has an experience, not everybody has to have the same experience to evolve the planet. Mm. It's because one has had it. And so that information gets transferred across because it's one single mirror ball. Mm. Whereas when we're in the physical and we're not, we're not feeling when we're not as um, conscious about connecting to our higher self, our soul, our source, we think of ourselves as separate physical individual little specks of light that has to compete with the others. Right. Uh, yeah, I love that. I love that metaphor. Well, not only because I love the Bee Gees and, and, and uh, Saturday Night Fever was probably my favorite movie growing up. But uh, John Travolta aside, um, yeah, I, I mean, we tend to believe that there is, that the self that there's a locus of consciousness crouching somewhere behind our eyes, looking out at the world. And that perspective leads us to believe, as you say, that we are separate, individuated entities living in a separate individual, uh, external world, because our perspective is coming from that speck of light that is you know, being refracted off the back wall, uh, often to a four on the floor beat. Um, or, uh, so, and I, I, th- I think that we confuse who we are with our body mind, with our personhood, which is often the thing that's reflected off and who we are in terms of our real essence or, or, or I suppose the infinite part of us that that doesn't change, that has access to uh, perceptions beyond sight and and taste and and hearing, um, and the disco ball is a good one. I hadn't heard that one before, so I'm happy. I'm happy to have that one in in the in the arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering, coming out of the other side of your experience how did your life change and were you able to maintain the perspective from inside the disco ball or or did you bounce back out to this feeling of sort of the individuated self, you know, kicking around a a discotheque? That's such a great question. So I maintained it for a while. And so the thing is that I, because I had that experience, um, I kind of know what to go for. So first of all, I want to say that because of the thing, because of that experience, it changed the trajectory of my life. So my life has never and can never go back to the way it was before the experience. 
So that part has definitely changed and it just cannot go back to the way it was before. The, the hard part has been to really, to truly realize how um, persistent the, yeah, you know, the, the dominant paradigm for want of a better word, how persistent it is and how I have to literally remove myself in order to get in touch with who I truly am. It's very hard to be who you are and be in the world. It is a challenge. It's, it's not easy. And I found that shortly after my near-death experience, um, I really did have to cut myself off from, from people, um, from my own survival. And, and it wasn't like I cut them off, but was like they fell away and I could not. So the person I used to be before the near-death experience, I was very accommodating and I was always um, wanting to please other people. I knew I couldn't do that anymore because doing that would mean going back to being the person I was before and believing in the things I believed in before, which I could not. Um, One of the biggest reasons was because I knew that even my illness was directly, and the healing of the illness was directly linked to this this experience I had, which gave me a different view of my life, my place on this world. It gave me a completely different view, and and it gave me a different trajectory. And I understand over the years more than ever, as the years went by, I didn't understand in the beginning, like when my dad said, go back and live your life fearlessly. That message is more profound than it sounds because I didn't realize how lonely it would be sometimes. I thank, I'm so thankful to God, the universe, um, that my husband has been with me. He has been the one steady um constant that's supported me through this journey. Um, But the world, navigating the world with the experience I had is challenging. It really is challenging. So yeah, I I was just going to say, I mean, I I grew up traveling around the world, uh, going to a new school every six months. I was also a very chubby kid and spent most of my uh, younger life trying to fit in. And because I was always uh, attempting to assimilate to the environment that I was moved to, I became a a people pleaser and really based my self-worth through the approval of others and saw my identity and, you know, through the eyes of others. Uh, And it, it took most of my life (laughs) to shun uh, the ego, I suppose, which, you know, tells you that, you know, you are separate from others, that, you know, you are what others think of you, you are what you have, you are what you do, you are your job title, you are your position in society, you know, all all of these things. And so, but it's, I, I agree with you, even though we have a sense for the, for sort of the, uh, the detrimental impacts of being too connected to the ego, it's very hard to eschew it. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm like, get away from me. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, do you feel like you can 
and particularly in your situation, and maybe you could talk about this because I'm sure you came out of your experience and while people were amazed and incredibly happy that you were healthy again, I'm sure a lot of people just didn't believe you. <laughs> so that yes. must have been incredibly difficult to navigate. So I wonder how, you know, just knowing what you know, you are able to kind of navigate the, the world of the 10,000 things here, which can be, you know, a bit cruel. So um, I want to touch on, you mentioned the ego. So I want to touch on that a little bit. I realized that I had to make friends with my ego and I had mm. to actually embrace it. And I'll tell you why, because all my spiritual teachings prior to the near-death experience taught me that we have to overcome the ego. We have to, that the ego is bad. The ego is what keeps you separate. So I had always been beaten up my ego and all. it was only when I died did I realize that oh okay I have to embrace and love all of me if I'm going to navigate this physical world and and I'm going to have to even love my ego but it gives you a different perspective of the ego because now you know so so what I mean is so in truly understanding your divinity you can even look at your ego like the child that it is and love it and hug it and say, okay, yeah, you, you, you need, you want to survive. You want to, you can actually um, indulge it even if you will, to make your experience in this world, in this physical world, a more pleasant one. But at the same time, you're aware that you're something more. The ego stops being an issue. That's mm. so that's what I one of the biggest lessons I learned, because actually, prior to the NDE, I was always battling my ego, always. Mm. That's so interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, Wayne Dye used to quote this Rabindranath Tagore poem, which you may know about the ego as my little self and how Tagore comes to God's door um, uh, ashamed to be coming with his ego, but his, but his ego is not ashamed at all. Um, and it's, it's funny. I think that those of us who do spend some time reflecting on the nature of self and ego are probably a, a lot more like you were prior to your NDE, which is, yeah, I have to tame my ego. Uh, I have to shun it. I have to eschew it. I have to connect to this part of me that is infinite and, and not this kind of, solid baser part of myself um but it sounds like what you have found is a more effective route is to embrace embrace it yeah that's that's beautiful and to your other question you actually asked about people not believing me that was frustrating uh, yeah. yes that's yeah. what you mentioned because yeah. uh, i knew there was another question in there yes Yes, um, I did struggle with people not believing me. And I realized it's not my job to convince everybody or anybody for that matter. Um, one of the things that frustrated me is when I came back and I was fully and, and weeks later, I was fully healed. I really thought that I wanted to shout it out from the rooftops that what had happened. I wanted people to understand 
why I had healed and why I had got sick because I thought it would help a lot of people. I wanted to shout it out from the rooftops. I thought people would be interested. And I was shocked to find that I was getting debunked and attacked and all kinds of things. I was sharing it for free on the internet. I wasn't even looking for money or to be paid or anything. I was sharing it for free. And I attracted so many debunkers and naysayers. And and so I thought, wow, this is interesting. People just, they, they just don't want to believe it. They just don't. So that was a, a awakening for me. I was so kind of innocent and naive and thought, why wouldn't they want to know? Um, people are suffering and they're sick and they're dying from cancer. And so um, I realized it's not my responsibility to convince anyone. And, um, and, and so I just started to find my own way in the world. And then I was discovered by Wayne Dyer. And then with Wayne Dyer, there was, again, like a huge audience and I had to deal with. And thankfully, Wayne Dyer brought me to an audience that was hungry for this kind of information. So that was beautiful. That was really amazing. Yeah. And, and so how, uh, I suppose, moving this into the realm of, of medicine and particularly conventional Western allopathic medicine, um, which I think we could agree is, is useful in cases of trauma, sometimes I break my leg, et cetera, um, but tends to, at least in my opinion, over-prescribe for non-traumatic uh, injuries or illnesses. But I wonder, you know, bringing back the information that you did uh, from the from the other side, um, how did it influence your understanding of illness and how do you kind of reconcile that with the kind of modern Western medical paradigm? Um, so that's, <laughs> that's a beautiful and a huge topic that I <laughs> have. I'm going to try and condense it because I have a lot to say about that. So, um, so first of all, as you said, modern medicine is wonderful for trauma, emergencies, accidents, things like that. Absolutely wonderful for all of that. Um, so one of the issues I have with modern medicine is that the focus is always on the illness and not the wellness or the ability of the body. Our bodies are amazing, ma magical, um, the, and the bodies. And, and also there is no focus on, the, um, on anything more than the body. So if we go back to the warehouse analogy um, and the flashlight is focusing on something and just like you, you mentioned my shoulders and immediately my flashlight focused on my shoulders, even though I wasn't aware of it before. So now imagine you go to a, a doctor and you're feeling fine. You're feeling totally fine. And then you go to a doctor and you get a test, you get, you get tests done or whatever and the doctor points out one thing that's wrong with you. And suddenly your flashlight is just, it just homes in on that one thing microscopically. And your every day, the, your focus every day is just on that one thing. That is the huge issue. That is actually the reason why our illnesses get bigger and bigger. The, so in other words, the way that we even, so it's the problem is of, 
this is right at the root of how it's done, uh, how modern medicine treats an illness, that in itself is the fundamental problem. There is no focus on your body's own ability to heal. There is no focus on um, you going on a spiritual path to find out, why am I here? What is my purpose? Am I maybe not following my purpose and doing something that makes me feel that I am uh, I am wasting my life? There is no exploration of anything, nothing other than, I mean, all of research is focused on looking for a drug to um, alleviate a particular a physical symptom or something they have found in your body. It is at the basest, shallowest level possible. Mm. And, and we have, and, and this mode, this method of treating illness, um, it instills fear in people because the minute you get a diagnosis, we not only fear the illness, we also fear the, um, we, we fear the treatment and we are, also made very often made to feel that if we don't follow the conventional um, medical treatments that anything else is woo-woo. Whereas I know because of the work I do, I speak to people all the time who know of and have, and I have experienced cutting edge technologies, which they cannot bring out into the open, cutting edge technologies for healing, cutting edge um, um, even methodologies, which is what I want to experiment in a healing sanctuary eventually. Mm. Um, all of these exist, cutting-edge methodologies of, of working with people um, so that their bodies can actually tap in to their own innate resources and abilities to heal. I know tons of people in these fields because they come to me to talk to me, and it exists, and they have they actually have clinical proof by way of their own patients who they treat, their own clients who they treat, but they cannot actually advertise in a big way. They have to put in disclaimers to say that um, if that please do not use our methods as a way to substitute medical treatment because medicine has that power. They have the power over us and they have the power to instill fear. And so people still feel that if they're not doing what medicine says, that it's woo-woo. Whereas, you know, we know that modern medicine kills a lot of people too. <laughs> yeah. And certainly uh, there's endless disclaimers often spoken very, very quickly at the end of a commercial in 15 seconds. <laughs> yes. So, yes. Um, and make cause death. <laughs> and make cause death. Yeah. And, and you know a lot of this obviously speaks to the um the nature of research and um and funding uh, because obviously a lot of these treatments that are compelling uh and deserve exploration uh, you know do require some sort of methodology put on top of them to prove their efficacy and you know we all you know believe in some form of the scientific method of, of hypothesis and experiment and observation and deduction and reasoning and modification of hypothesis or, and, and determination. And in order to actually apply that method, which has 
been rather flexible to some of these alternate, I don't even want to call them alternative because that almost frames them in a particular way, but some of these competing therapies, um, it, we need funding for to do the proper research. But of course, the public health agencies yes. and, and universities and pharma, that constellation um, and, and the potentially misaligned incentives that exist between within that constellation make it very difficult to obtain proper funding to put exactly. towards some of these things. So, yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. So these very, very effective and um, empowering modalities, which are more effective than medicine and pharmaceuticals, they do no harm, but they actually empower you. Um, and they, they receive no funding for clinical research and clinical trials. Whereas um, in their small trials and their own, you know, um, because they do no harm, you have a lot of people who are willing to try it. I have seen it work. I have used a lot of these methods and they work on me and I have seen it work and they are powerful. But um, yeah, they don't receive the, the big funding or the big accolades and, and they have to always put in disclaimers and the disclaimer alone is what d diminishes their power because, because then they are always treated as a last resort of when, when pharma has already done everything to you and given you side effects and now you're even worse off than you were before and you think, oh, what have I got to lose? And that's when you go to these other alternative or complementary. Yeah, they're not. sort of often yeah, seen as a, as a last resort. Um, Which is sad ooh. because I believe if they were the first resort, first resort. Yeah. the person <laughs> right. would be so much better. That's from my experience looking through my eyes, that's how I view illness and our bodies and our connection. I feel we have it completely back to front and upside down, completely. The first thing we do when someone has a diagnosis is instill fear in them. That should be the last thing, the absolute last thing. Yeah, and I suppose there are a few examples that you can point to where kind of alternative therapies have somewhat enter the mainstream, like, for example, with the legalization of, of marijuana and the use of THC and a whole variety of different uh, uh, purposes, and, and now more recently, psychedelics coming online into a more mainstream conversation around addressing cognitive dysfunction and, and, and whatnot. But it took Michael Pollan to write a book, and this thing, you know, uh, you, you know, inches along the moral universe at a snail's pace. And as soon as it gets legalized, it gets immediately commodified <laughs> and yeah. can often become uh, part of the problem. So as, exactly. uh, as, as it often is, it is our, some of our capitalist structure that overlays almost every set of interesting ideas and developments and innovations that has an ability to, on occasion, pervert, uh, pervert the use of it. Um, I'll, uh, I'll take this, you know, the, the, the time that we have remaining to actually ask you a question about time, um, because this is a, a topic that I'm prodding at in my life right now on a consistent basis. So can you discuss how your 
understanding of time evolved um, in the aftermath of, of your experience? So um, during the, ex- well, prior to the experience, the, the main thing was I, I, I used to, of course, uh, believe that time is linear. And for all intents and purposes, while we're here in this physical time, we do have to live it in a linear form because it, time yeah. is one of the most persistent things of our paradigm right now. It is. We, we, both, we both showed up on time for this particular discussion, and that was, mm-hmm. prag- that was pragmatic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we do have to kind of respect other people's time and show up on time and, 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 and all that. Um, but, but when I was on that realm, uh, it felt as if all of time exists all at once. All my past lives, present lives, future lives, even the future like I could access stuff from the future. I mean, I even feel right now in my life when I feel things pulling or calling me, I feel it's my own future. We call it a calling, follow your calling. I feel that it's because it's my own future calling me because my own, my future actually exists in another dimension, in another realm. And it's pulling me towards it. It's not that I am creating a future, but but I believe there's lots of potential futures and it's up to me, depending on what I do in this moment in time, I can choose whether I want to go for a, let's use the word frequency, like a lower frequency future or a higher frequency future, depending on whether I make a choice that is of um, that is a more uplifting for me or something that feels really heavy for me. But, uh, I want to share maybe a little story that might help to put this into context. Um, after my near-death experience, I had to spend a lot of time like re-exploring, exploring who I am and just exploring myself and uh, figuring out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And it wasn't that easy because I had changed dramatically and I didn't feel I fit in with the old paradigm. And so I had to like figure it all out. And because I felt that when I wanted to share my story from the rooftops and everything, and and I was so excited about it, I was debunked and, you know, there were naysayers. I decided to stop sharing my story. I had written it on the internet. I didn't even put my own full name on it and I set it free. So I thought, okay, I've set my story free. It'll land where it needs to land. People who will need to read it will read it. And, um, and then I started going about my own journey. Um, and people would ask me to come and share my story at places at their conferences or clinics. And I would say, no, not really. I I don't really want to. And so I started figuring out other stuff to do. And I started to train to become something called a cultural trainer. I was helping people of different cultures integrate into, I was living in Hong Kong, so integrate into Hong Kong. What happened is that um, a good friend of mine who has a healing center, she actually asked me to come and speak at her healing center. And at first I kind of said, oh, I don't know, Um, you know, like I've been dealing with debunkers and naysayers. She said, oh no, you don't get it. In this healing center, 
everybody would love your story because they are all part of this, you know, like they're, they're into, uh, they believe in something more and a higher self. They're curious. Yeah. They're curious. Exactly. Right. She said, they're not, they're not the people that, that you will encounter if your story goes into the local newspaper, very different or into the local medical journal, very different. So, um, so I said, okay, so I go in there and I, and she has, she's invited all her clients. There's an audience of about 60 or 70 people. And so I'm standing there on this podium in this big conference room and addressing 60 or 70 people. And I'm sharing my story, much like what I shared with you at the beginning of this, this program and sharing with them. And they're listening and I can see some people are tearing up and, um, People are getting emotional. And, and as they are doing that, I'm also feeling really passionate about it and feeling their energy and they're feeling mine and I'm feeling theirs. And when I finish sharing, people are so emotional and they come up and they hug me and they say, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm so glad you're here and I'm so glad you shared that. And, and so I was really, really moved. And so a shift took place within me after that sharing. And that was the first time I realized that, wow, there is, there are people who are hungry for this kind of thing. And the reason they're hungry for this kind of thing is because the thing, I, the, the stuff I'm sharing is not mainstream because the mainstream debunks it. The very reason I had those issues um, is the very reason there exists another market of people, I, you know, I use the term market lo loosely, but another group of people, another hungry audience of people that actually want more of this information because they're not getting it because the world doesn't accept it. So I suddenly, I had this big shift. It was like, oh, and it was almost like a deja vu moment from my near-death experience where I had realized that my purpose was not yet fulfilled. So in that moment, it was like, maybe my purpose is to share the story with the people who are hungry for this information because the world poo-poos this information. There isn't enough of it. And so my purpose is to share the story with them. And I was so like, you know, blown away. It was like I was emotional from that revelation within myself. Um, and well, Go it ahead. also, it, it felt connective, right? Yes. It, it, because it, all of a sudden you were experiencing that same kind of connection that you had felt outside of the physical plane, inside of the physical plane. <laughs> like these people were there with you, you know, and, and exchanging that energy. Anyway, it's just it, an observation. <laughs> yes, exactly that. I felt this connection with them and I felt that that this is why I came back. It was just uh, an incredible feeling. And then, so that night I go to bed feeling, oh, and I even said to my friend, I want to do this more often. So in my head, I'm thinking I'm going to doing it, be doing it more in her healing center. Um, my, my own picture was no bigger than that, but it was like that shift was huge. And it's like, I started talking to her and saying, I'm going to come back here more often. I'm going to connect with your your clients more often and everything. And so I go to bed, literally the next morning I wake up, it's my birthday. And there is an email from the publishers, Hey House. And bear in mind, I had never communicated with them in my life before, no connection with them. And there's an email who's from a woman who says she is the 
chief editor and she said that um, uh, Wayne Dyer has discovered your story on the internet and has asked us to track you down and ask you whether you would be interested in writing a book which we would publish which he would like to write the forward to and help you promote. <laughs> I read that and I started crying. And I thought, what? I just had that connection like 10 hours before, you know, before I went to bed, 10 or 11 hours. And how did the universe react so quickly? And, um, and so I wrote back and I said, oh my God, yes. Um, and do you know it's my birthday? And what do I have to do next? You know, like sign me up. <laughs> I was so excited. And I was crying. And so she was online. She wrote back immediately and she goes, oh, happy birthday. Well, it's it's very easy. We'll send you a book deal and you just have to sign it. And then we will work with you from there to and, and to get this done. So that was like just I was so blown away because who gets a book deal? landing on their desk and then and of course the rest is history after that because he brought me on stage and everything but here's where it gets better so one day Wayne Dyer just said to me out of the blue he goes do you know how hard you were to track down I said no what do you mean he said your story on the internet didn't even have your full name on it it just said Anita M's NDE and I um I called up Hey House, I called up Reed Tracy and said, you need to track down that woman who wrote that and we need to get her to write a book. And he said, it took them five months to track you down through some clues in that blog, like clues like that you live in Hong Kong and whatever. And, and it took them five months to track me down. But what's interesting is the day they tracked me down, was the day I realized that my purpose was to share my story. So if mm. I'd realized it sooner, they would have tracked me down sooner. If I realized it later, they would have tracked me down later. So, so <laughs> that's what I mean about time not being linear. <laughs> yeah, well, that's such a, a wonderful story. And boy, am I glad that they did track you down. And uh, <laughs> I'm also very friendly with Reed, and, and I know he's also very glad um and i think you know there's a lot um to learn from that right because you know many of us are trudging through life with a tremendous amount of fear you know yeah. fear of failure and fear of success to be honest and yeah. actually both of those things are almost the same thing which is actually fear of judgment. Um, and, uh, and, you know, to be honest, you can live your whole life enshrouded uh, in fear, and that can you know, paralyze your creativity and self-expression. Um, so it, yeah. it sounds like, I mean, also, not everybody can die to get a book deal. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, and I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to make fun of it. Um, no, that's all right. I make fun of it all the time. My, my <laughs> husband tells me that I must have flunked, um, earth school cause I got sent back. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, we could have another conversation about the power of long-term relationship because I've been in, 
I've been with my wife for 33 years and I know that you and Danny have been together for quite a long time and uh, the freedom that 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 allows within conversation and relationship I think is is very special Um, but I think you know maybe just to you know to put a exclamation point on our conversation you know if you could just if you could message people about the nature of fear and how to address it in one's own life, I think that could be a very helpful conclusion. Um, so the, um, I want to give something. So first of all, uh, I want to tell people don't fear the fear. And so when you feel fear, allow it, embrace it, and allow it to pass. It will pass. Fear passes because sometimes when we judge fear and we fear the fear, it lingers longer. So allow the fear and allow it to pass. Um, But also what I want people to know is that um, whenever they get a chance, if you're feeling fear and it's too much and you want it to pass, is just sit quietly and breathe. Just sit quiet and focus on the breath. And as you are just focusing, so you're shifting your focus from the fear to your breath. So you've already shifted the flashlight there. Because when you're feeling fear, it's because your flashlight is focused on something that doesn't feel good. So the idea always is to shift the flashlight to something that feels better. So even if it's something as simple as shifting it to your breath, that already helps. When you shift it to your breath and when you can stay in that long enough, what happens is that you start to connect with your higher self, your divine self. When you're connected to that, you start to get what I call messages. The longer, and this is the thing about being able to meditate or go out in nature or when you sit and listen to music or sit at the beach and watch the waves, when you can clear your mind of clutter, that's when your higher self can talk to you. The reason why a lot of people feel disconnected is because our minds are um, are so cluttered that your higher self, that that mirror ball, the the universe, the, the mirror ball, your 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 mirror tile and your mirror ball is unable to connect with you and get messages to you because you are being bombarded by messages from the outside, from your physical world. Most of the messages from our physical world are fear-based messages. If your life is overrun with fear, it means that you are identifying too strongly with the physical world and you have forgotten to connect with who you truly are, with your spiritual self. All the messages from your higher self are comforting and they are not fear-based. And so people say to me, if all the messages from your higher self are not fear-based, how does your higher self warn you of danger or how does it warn you of illness or anything like that? It tells you of it by telling you a way out of it. It doesn't tell you, oh, you're going to die in three months. It doesn't tell you like, oh, you've got cancer. No. It, the messages from there are about how to navigate out of those situations, how to avoid those situations, how to come out of it, or, or you know, they, they are always bring you comfort, or they will give you 
comfort as to why you're going through what you're going through, but don't worry, it's going to pass soon. Or those are the kinds of things that are, is our higher self talking to us. Fear-based messages are coming from the physical world. And so if you can quiet the physical world, you can hear the higher messages. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Anita Morjani. Please make sure to check out her newest book, Sensitive is the New Strong, and keep abreast of her in general at anitamorjani.com. Shoot me an email any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com. You can follow me on the IG at Jeff Krasno and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.